Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're going to talk about obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD, which is something I have a feeling most of us are casually familiar with. We might even joke about having, say, OCD in terms of having to do the dishes in a particular kind of way. Load the dishwasher. I don't know what you would be referring to, Kristen Conger, dishwasher mistress. I may or may not have a very particular (laughs) way of loading the dishwasher. But the fact of the matter is, within the medical community, a lot still isn't known about OCD. And OCD isn't something for people who actually experience it that is as casual as, say, really enjoying an orderly dishwasher. Uh, Right, because uh, I was accused in college of being OCD because I follow the same morning routine so strictly. Uh, You know, like my roommate actually said, you know, God, are you just like totally OCD? You know, you get up the same time every day and then you shower and then you do this and this and this and it never deviates. And it's my response was, well, that has way more to do with the fact that I have not switched on my brain yet in the morning. <laughs> it's not that I, you know, feel compelled to follow a certain routine. But yeah, it's it's OCD is so much more than just loading the dishwasher a certain way, following a certain morning routine. It's certainly more than just how adorable the character Monk is on that television show because the key to OCD that separates the media representation from the real-life reality is that people with obsessive-compulsive disorder don't actually enjoy the things that they feel compelled to do. Yeah, and it is rather ironic that we collectively approach OCD and talk about OCD in such a casual, joking way, whereas it is this disorder that still needs a lot more attention. So, for instance, Johns Hopkins hospital researcher, Dr. Gerald Nestalt, who recently identified a gene linked to OCD, told Newsweek, quote, it never had the sexy appeal of other psychiatric disorders. So we're fine with joking about it. But the the jokes have perhaps eroded our perception of it as a serious mental disorder that affects a lot of people. Yeah, well, and the interesting thing, too, is that OCD, this is not a new disorder. This is not something that has just cropped up in the past 10 or 20 years that scientists are thinking, oh, maybe we should finally study this. People have been writing about and observing OCD symptoms for centuries. Yeah, we found a lot of information about the medical history of obsessive compulsive disorder over at Stanford. And it was first described in medical literature in the 17th century as, quote, symptoms of religious melancholy. And pretty much the entire representation of it at the time seemed to be the struggle between the mind and carnal thoughts and God. Right. And in 1691, Bishop John Moore defined it as trouble where the trouble is over, a doubt when doubts are resolved. He wrote that naughty and sometimes blasphemous thoughts, which start in their minds while they are exercised in the worship of God, despite all their endeavors to stifle and suppress them, the more they struggle with them, the more they increase. So, That definition, while it is very, very old, is not that unfamiliar to people who have researched the disease today. 
And in the 19th century, the more modern concept of OCD really begins to evolve with differentiations between obsessions and delusions, as well as compulsions and impulsions. In other words, figuring out what the line is between maybe just naturally impulsive behavior Mm -hmm. and unnaturally compulsive behavior. Right. And in 1838, one psychiatrist described it as a form of partial insanity. And while this idea was abandoned by the mid-19th century, so it didn't have a very long lifespan, what I thought was interesting about it was that it's this partial insanity idea that is sort of how OCD is described today. Because the whole thing is that someone with OCD recognizes that the thoughts and behaviors that they experience day in and day out are not normal. They are, quote unquote, crazy and that they feel that these are negative things that they just have no power to avoid or ignore. And so this idea, while it was abandoned, was sort of on the right track. And around the same time, the Germans were positing that it was a disorder of intellect. And speaking of the Germans... OCD gets its name in the late 19th century from differing translations of the term, forgive me if I mispronounce it, Zwangwurstelung, which is a compelled presentation or idea. Yeah, so in Great Britain, they translate this, will you say the German term again, please, Caroline, because I don't trust my mangled German pronunciation, Uh, Zwangwurstelung. So they translate that as obsession, Whereas in the United States, it becomes translated as compulsion. And so we agree to disagree and call it obsessive compulsive disorder. And moving away from Germany and into Austria, of course, Freud had something to say about OCD. But we won't dwell on Freud for too long. But Freud thought that OCD was simply the mind's maladaptive response to, quote, conflicts between unacceptable, unconscious, sexual or aggressive id impulses and demands of conscience and reality. So not too far from that 17th century idea about what it was, although that concerned more religion than just purely sex and the id. And Well, if anything, all of these definitions seem to have in common this idea of OCD As a mental tug of war, really. Yeah, and speaking of that mental tug of war, let's dive into what it is. We've given you a bit of a history, but let's turn to the National Institutes of Mental Health, who define OCD as a disorder that's characterized by frequent, uncontrollable, upsetting thoughts, a.k.a. obsessions, that compel people to perform ritual behavior, a.k.a. compulsions. And like we said earlier, these rituals are not pleasurable. It's not the satisfaction you get from purging and organizing your closet, from organizing your books on your shelf, just so. This is stuff that really interferes with daily life. And we should also note that OCD is distinct from obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is a mental condition in which a person is preoccupied by rules, orderliness and control. So it sounds pretty similar and they do have similar symptoms. But crucially, people with OCD usually know, like we've mentioned, that those intrusive thoughts are illogical, whereas people with OCPD believe they're right and often get angry when confronted. And it's closely associated with perfectionism, which, Caroline, we should absolutely devote a podcast to at some point. Totally. And one source I found looking at OCPD 
said that it affects both men and women, but occurs more often in men than in women. And it also starts later in life than OCD or it could just be diagnosed later in life than OCD is. And, uh, you know, it's just another condition that I assume I have because I turn into a hypochondriac anytime you and I do anything about mental, emotional, physical health. And, and you do get very angry when I confront you, Caroline. <laughs> about rules? About missing sandwiches. Yeah, well, no, it's it's the different OCPD, while they still might have those obsessions and those compulsions, like you said, they think that they're right and that, the you know, when they, I don't know, let me just pull something out of my hat here. Like if they get mad in traffic that people are, you know, breaking traffic rules, then they might feel very like self-righteous and, and like they are correct in assuming that everybody else is driving like a jerk. And you are driving perfectly. Of course. Of course. And I'm smiling now. Well, we clearly need to save OCPD and perfectionism <laughs> for another podcast because I think there's a lot for us to explore there, Caroline. I know. I'm sensing a lot of energy behind this. Yes, yes. Um, but we really want to devote this episode just to looking at obsessive compulsive disorder, no P involved. And just for a little more insight into how it impacts people who experience it. Dr. Judith L. Rappaport wrote in her groundbreaking 1989 study, The Boy Who Couldn't Stop Washing, The Experience and Treatment of OCD, that for people with OCD, quote, everyday life becomes tyrannized by doubts, leading to senseless repetition and ritual. Because, again, there are these uh, these obsessions and the recognition that they are very likely illogical, and yet you are compelled to do them over and over again. So it's a very unpleasant, to say the least process. And so it's for that reason, um, realizing that their thoughts, compulsions and obsessions are illogical, that people with OCD are very effective at hiding their behavior. They don't want to appear crazy. They already think that the thoughts that they're experiencing are crazy. And so they don't want to let on to others that they might be struggling with a real, very real issue. Yeah, they might still perform their ritual, very likely are still performing their quote unquote rituals in private but just away from anybody actually seeing this, unlike, say, something like schizophrenia, where there is no recognition that what they're experiencing is delusion and disordered. And so for that reason, because of the ability for people with obsessive compulsive disorder to possibly indulge the disorder while keeping it private, that can prolong diagnosis and effective treatment. Yeah. And so some of the basic symptoms, if, you know, you are a hypochondriac type of individual like I am, you you might want to listen to the symptoms because OCD is, is very specific. It's not something that can be mistaken for something else. So symptoms of OCD include repeated thoughts and images revolving around things like a fear of germs, dirt or intruders, acts of violence hurting loved ones, sexual acts, conflicts with religious beliefs, or being overly tidy. And that's followed by, here. this is where the compulsions come in, performing rituals over and over again, such as washing hands, locking and unlocking doors, counting, keeping unneeded items, or repeating the same, same steps again and again, which is compounded by this uncontrollability which makes this entire cycle often time consuming to the point of causing distress and getting in one's way of daily life. Because once it starts, then you have to complete the entire process. And one one action might 
sort of trigger another action. It's a, it can often be sort of a domino effect of all of these things that you have to do. And suddenly you're two hours late, even leaving the house for work because you have to unlock or lock or tap or whatever it might be, wash your hands and, until you feel able to relinquish it and then go. Yeah. One source we read, a guy um, picked up rocks and sticks off the street because he was obsessed with the idea that someone could hurt themselves. And so he was constantly bending over and picking up rocks. And so in that behavior, it's almost like, okay, if I'm just passing by a guy who's like bending down and picking something up off the street, I'm not going to think that's strange. But he said that eventually it got to the point where because he was doing it every day, you know, kids on the street were watching him going like, why is that guy picking up every single rock? And he would try to try to exercise a degree of willpower and just say, nope, I'm just going to keep walking. But he would literally double back and walk back almost a mile sometimes to go pick up that rock that was in the street. And so these things, these aren't just like, oh, I'm just going to go check the iron one more time to make sure I turn it off or just go make sure that I unplug the whatever thing to make sure it doesn't burn the house down. This is stuff that really does interfere with your daily life. And it has a high co- comorbidity with things like depression, social phobias and eating disorders, even Tourette's syndrome and other conditions like that. And there's no real gender difference, though, in whether or how many comorbid conditions a person with OCD has. We also read that there was a slightly elevated risk for body dysmorphic disorder, hypochondria and alcohol abuse. And so as a result of all of this, a 2010 study in the journal Molecular Psychiatry found that 60 percent of people with moderate OCD and 80 percent of people with severe OCD experience severe impairment with relationships, work, home life and social life. So my appreciation for an orderly dishwasher loading process is something very finite. I get my dishwasher in one particular way and then I'm done. But if, say, I have to arrange and rearrange those dishes over and over and over again and move the cups all around in a certain way that it's taking up so much time and never allowing me to ever just leave it be and then impacting my personal life in that way, just as one example, that that's the difference between mm-hmm. me just enjoying something in a particular kind of way versus an actual disordered behavior. Yeah. And it would also it also might be tied to almost a superstitious belief that what you're doing has an effect on something else in the universe. I don't know if you ever watched. I think it was MTV's True Life series. Oh, yes, of course. But there was one featuring a young woman with OCD and her compulsion was to turn light switches so that they all pointed up because her mother was very ill and she had sort of developed this obsessive compulsion and this behavior because she was convinced that, okay, if I just do this, then that is somehow going to control my mother's health. And that if if I fail at my compulsion, if I leave the light switches pointing down, then she's going to get sick. And I watched that exact exact episode, Caroline. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I mean, it, it might seem so ridiculous of like, well, of course, a light switch isn't going to negatively impact your mother's health. But one day, if you don't do that mm-hmm. and then something happens, of course, they're unrelated. But why would you ever take the chance? That's the kind of, you know, the, the sort of thinking that tug of war again between the logical and illogical in your brain that makes this so um, almost addictive in the behavioral pattern. Yeah, exactly. And so when does OCD 
surface. When is it diagnosed? Well, it usually emerges during childhood or adolescence, but the average age of diagnosis isn't until 19. And there was a 2004 paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that found that there is a 17-year average gap between the onset of symptoms and the diagnosis. But hopefully that gap has actually narrowed in the past 11 years. But there again, there, I mean, there hasn't been a ton of research pointing to whether that's true. And Dr. Christopher Pittenger, who's the director of the Yale OCD Research Clinic, is really invested in narrowing that gap because he points out that it affects a lot more people than we might realize. He points to a 2012 study which found 1.2% of the population have OCD in any given year, and that rises to a 2.7% lifetime prevalence rate, which translates to 1 in 40 people, or 8 million Americans, and around 176 million people worldwide. And the individual symptoms are even more common. Yeah. And it's interesting when you look at country by country breakdowns of how many people experience OCD, uh, the the percentages are different. Uh, reports of 13 percent of Europeans experiencing symptoms, up to 28 percent of Americans, 21 percent of Swiss citizens. But the whole thing there is that people are defining OCD and OCD symptoms and the threshold for being diagnosed in different ways. And so it would be interesting to see if everybody had across the globe a standard definition and a standard threshold, what those numbers would do. And he emphasizes, uh, Dr. Pittenger, that OCD is far more common than schizophrenia and bipolar one disorder, which affect around one percent of the population. But that also gets back to that quote from Dr. Gerald Nestalt to Newsweek magazine saying that OCD has never had this, quote unquote, sexy appeal of other psychiatric disorders. And then that also relates as well to the ability of people with OCD to mask their OCD to possibly delay getting treatment. Yeah. And back in 1995, the World Health Organization identified OCD as one of the top 20 global sources of disability. And that's that number has since dropped due to some methodological tweaks in the research. But I mean, that's that's a huge deal because people like we said, people with OCD have a really high unemployment rate. These people are not unaffected just because they can mask their symptoms from day to day doesn't mean it's not debilitating. Now, what about the gender? Because, of course, if we're talking about something on Stuff Mom Never Told You, we have to unpack the gender differences. So before I started researching for this episode, I had assumed that we were going to find that OCD tends to lean more women, possibly because a lot of the OCD jokes, whether self-inflicted or jokes about other people having OCD, seem to be more lady directed, maybe because we are likelier to be loading the dishwasher or organizing our bookshelves and closets, whatever. But it turns out that in the real world, away from all of our casual jokes, it seems to affect men and women equally, although there is some nuance within there. Yeah, and we are going to get into that nuance when we come right back from a quick break. podcast, we were defining OCD, giving a bit of a history, and we were about to dive into the gender differences. And as Kristen was saying, 
There's not a huge gender difference, but some researchers have found that there is a slightly earlier onset among boys. One 1989 study, for instance, found that it's diagnosed in boys around age nine and a half versus age 11 in girls. But the thing is, depending on the study and depending on the methodology, other researchers have found either that there's no significant difference between onset in boys and girls at all, or that it actually shows up earlier in girls and women than it does in boys and men. So what is going on there? Well, I wonder, when it comes to the diagnosis, if boys might be likelier to receive an earlier diagnosis due a little bit to gender stereotyping and socialization, because perhaps some of the most visible symptoms of OCD might stand out more Mm -hmm. in a little boy because it doesn't seem like little boyish type of behavior to perhaps be washing his hands compulsively because we associate cleanliness and things like that more with little girls. So if Mm -hmm. a little girl is washing her hands a lot, for instance, (laughs) one of my sisters as a child and still to this day, I don't want to say obsessively at this point now that I understand OCD, she didn't obsessively wash her hands, but she was very concerned about having clean hands. And I don't think it ever struck my parents as strange because she was just a, you know, a clean minded little girl. But I think if one of my brothers had done it, it would have raised more of an eyebrow. Yeah, I have a friend with a little boy who is three or four now. And from the time that he was very little, like very, very toddler, first learning to walk, he was already exhibiting in her mind. I haven't witnessed it, but in her mind, OCD behavior. Because he was very obsessed from the earliest age, even before he could say a full sentence, with making sure his toys were in a very specific place, in a very specific order, making sure that there was nothing on the floor picking up after himself. And so whether that does develop into actual, an actual OCD diagnosis, we'll wait and see. But she was definitely, this is her firstborn, firstborn child, a boy. And here he is obsessed with cleanliness in order to the point where he's pointing at his mother to like pick stuff up and, and clean stuff. I mean, to me, honestly, Caroline, a child at that age that picks up after him or herself just sounds like a dream. Sounds like a total. And that's what I said to her. I was like, I don't think I would worry about it yet. But my niece, one of my nieces, one of my many nieces, did a similar thing. She um, was very she's very interested in order and lining her toys up, especially when she was younger in a similar kind of way. But my sister never batted an eyelash again, though. I wonder if my niece were a nephew, if maybe she would have been a little more nervous about that behavior. But again, all I'm saying is a self-cleaning child. <laughs> so like a self-cleaning. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Does he change his own diaper? Done. <laughs> Perfect. Sign me up. But where gender differences have been uncovered is in the way that some of these behaviors and compulsions manifest themselves. And there was a 2011 literature review on some of the symptomatic distinctions with male patients experiencing more social impairment, sexual, religious and aggressive symptoms and comorbidity with tics and substance abuse. While female patients, they found, were likelier to have cleaning and contamination obsessions and comorbidity with eating disorders and impulse control disorders. And one of the things that uh, this made me stop and wonder was 
you know, are are these things manifesting along very gendery, normy uh, lines? Because like you said, when we were talking about the kids, Kristen, you know, girls are expected to be more clean and well behaved and neat. Um, and when people express anger, masculine people are expected to be more, you know, out there with their anger, more physical and violent. And so, you know, and we also hear more reports of eating disorders typically in the media and wherever we hear more eating disorder reports among women and girls. And so it's interesting that these obsessions and compuls- compulsions in this behavior would sort of emerge and blossom along these what we would kind of consider gender normy lines. Yeah, well, and unpacking all of that and figuring out where perhaps the neurology meets the sociology is what a lot of doctors today are trying to figure out because we have these we have these symptoms that we can see and we can identify in terms of say a cleaning or contamination obsession or social impairment but where does that root back to stripping away the gender if we look into biology delving into our brains why is this happening and there does appear to be a genetic link, although the jury is still out on exactly what it is. Um, earlier in the podcast, we quoted Johns Hopkins researcher, Dr. Gerald Nestalt, who helped identify a genetic marker called protein tyrosine phosphokinase that seems to be associated with OCD. So they're thinking there is probably a hereditary link. That makes sense, or it makes sense to me in my completely non-scientific uh, line of work. Well, and I'm trying to remember, Caroline, whether we ran across any twin studies mm-hmm. on OCD, because a lot of times when we're trying to figure out whether something is hereditary, you get a bunch of twins together and say, <laughs> who has what? How does this happen? But again, the research on all of this is still in a surprisingly like elementary phase. Yeah, you would think... But, I mean, we run across that in so many of the health episodes we do that you would think that by now people would know more. But, you know, there's only so much funding out there. Well, brain scans have shown that, okay, we might have this genetic link, but there does seem to be a brain difference in someone with OCD versus someone without OCD, which isn't surprising considering, again, this like tug of war, as we've termed it, between logical and illogical, this compulsion, thinking about um, our brains with impulsivity and those kinds of behaviors. Mm -hmm. So some medical researchers have highlighted a hyperconnectivity between the orbitofrontal cortex and the caudate nucleus. Caroline, can you put that (laughs) in plain English? Well, the orbitofrontal cortex is the part of the brain that's involved in decision making. And the caudate nucleus is part of the basal ganglia and is responsible for voluntary movement. So you've got that decision making linking up with movement. And this in turn creates this irrational fear and response cycle. And other brain regions, too, have also been implicated, but it could also be related to a dysregulation of dopamine or serotonin. But as Christopher Pittenger, that Yale OCD research clinic head, says, the fact is the vast majority of the time, a brain scan in someone with OCD looks completely normal. What? (laughs) Pittenger? (laughs) Add another wrinkle to this mystery. Yeah, he says that brain imaging hasn't obviously led to a cure because 
there isn't one there there isn't an OCD brain, essentially, yeah. is what he's saying. Yeah. But when we were reading these sources about brain imaging and scans of, of people with OCD versus people without OCD, they did include scans that showed some OCD patients do have way more brain activity in those regions that we mentioned than someone without. And so it's not that there's never an indication on a brain scan. It's just that sometimes there's not. Yeah, it's not it's not consistent across the board. But that doesn't mean that treatments don't exist, although Pittenger and others point out that existing options aren't terribly effective, especially when it comes to medication. Because current medications work for only 60 to 70 percent of cases. Plus, the New York Times reported that only one third of patients with OCD even receive any appropriate pharmacotherapy and fewer than 10 percent receive any kind of evidence-based psychotherapy, such as um, exposure therapy and effective therapy a lot of times is derailed because of misdiagnosis of depression or anxiety, which might accompany OCD. Mm -hmm. But treating depression and anxiety is not the same as treating OCD. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, again, this points to that average 17-year gap that was indicated in that 2004 study between the onset of symptoms and actually getting a diagnosis. Well, also, it makes sense if you have someone who is aware that some of the the intrusive thoughts that they're experiencing might be, quote unquote, crazy. Um, maybe they will just go to their doctor and say, hey, you know, I'm feeling really anxious or I'm feeling really depressed or something's off or not right. You know, I've talked about on the podcast before talking to my doctor about anxiety I was experiencing and how quick she was to be like, oh, well, here's an anti-anxiety prescription. It's like, whoa, whoa. You know, I didn't take it because it's like, let's figure out <laughs> What's actually going on before I just start taking anxiety medication? And so I can see how that could happen very easily where if someone maybe doesn't tell their doctor about the intrusive thoughts or the obsessive behavior and they just complain about a certain aspect of what's going on with them, that they could end up misdiagnosed or taking the wrong medicine. Yeah. If you say, I have a hard time forming and maintaining relationships and leaving my house, well, here you go. Here's some Zoloft, I right. don't know, like some kind of antidepressant. And in fact, SSRIs combined with exposure therapy is one of the most common treatment combinations. And exposure therapy is pretty much what it sounds like. You gradually expose the patient to the compulsive trigger mm-hmm. to sort of break down the that that logic barrier to let them know that, OK, if you flip the light switch, it isn't, in fact, going to set off this chain of events. So, right. for instance, with that, that girl in the MTV show that Caroline and I both watched probably in our <laughs> early college days, right. uh, an exposure therapy might be having her leave her house with maybe one to start off with light switch flipped down rather than up and just seeing what happens throughout the day and whether it in fact changes anything. And one controversial figure in the treatment of OCD is Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA, who uh, relies on a trick called mindfulness meditation. Uh, He wants to harness the brain's neuroplasticity to allow patients to rewire their thought patterns. And this is coming from an article in Discover Magazine that I thought was fascinating and So he has this group of people 
with OCD uh, who have suffered varying levels of obsessive and compulsive thoughts and behaviors for years to the point of hopelessness of my life is never going to change. This is terrible. I can barely make it through the day. Um, a lot of people came to him with suicidal thoughts and tendencies as a last resort. What do I do? And so what he basically has them do is sort of what practitioners of meditation in general tell you to do, which is recognize the thoughts as they come to you, hold them, examine them, accept that they are, quote unquote, trash thoughts, basically, and then sort of throw them away. And I mean, I'm I'm greatly simplifying his whole process, but it involves, you know, realizing that these thoughts are junk, that they don't actually affect your life and that you have power over them. And that seems like, oh, my God, how do I have power over them? I can barely, you know, make it through the day without doing whatever ritual it is I have to do. Um, but once he sort of informed people that you've got to tell yourself that this is the OCD, this is the disorder making you do this. This isn't you actually wanting to wash your hands 50 times or flip the light switch 50 times. This is the OCD telling you to do something that you don't actually want to do. Because again, these are behaviors and rituals that people don't get joy out of. It's not like telling someone who loves to organize the dishwasher, you've got to stop doing it because they won't want to. These are people who are feel absolutely overwhelmingly controlled by rituals that they do not want to participate in anymore. And so over time, he not only watched as these people sort of took control over their lives, but at the end of the session, I think it was like 10 weeks, he did another brain scan and the act, the areas in the brain where people had shown a lot of activity because of their OCD, it suddenly was just like a flicker as opposed to a giant glow. Yeah, because the idea is with this kind of Mindfulness meditation, which is becoming more and more common, I feel like I'm hearing it a lot. It's something that if you've taken a yoga class, you might have heard about or have just gone to a general therapist. Um, trying to harness that idea of the brain's neuroplasticity of rewiring the patterns of our thoughts through habit and repetition and this idea of presence and staying present is really, uh, really compelling when you apply it to something like OCD, but also quite controversial Mm -hmm. to apply it to something as ingrained as a disorder as as OCD, because some people in the medical community say, no, this is kind of hocus pocus. You can't actually, you know, just magically, and it's not magically, I'm saying that magically in quotes, rewire your own brain. Um, But he seems to have had success with it. And side note, fun fact about Dr. Schwartz, his claim to fame is training Leonardo DiCaprio for his Oscar nominated role as Howard Hughes, who had debilitating OCD in the film The Aviator. Mm-hmm. So if you're curious about what OCD can look like you, and, and what Dr. Schwartz's understanding of it is, you can watch Leo DiCaprio in The Aviator. And apparently, as this Discover Magazine profile of him talked about, Leonardo DiCaprio's method acting embodiment of these severe OCD behaviors were so impactful on him that even, I think it was something like a year after filming, he was still sort of having to rework his way back into the the regular normal world, sort of de-engage himself from it. Yeah. 
So talk about, I mean, that's kind of reverse neuroplasticity or, or reverse mindful me- mindfulness meditation. Yeah. And I, it's interesting. I, I totally, this whole mindfulness meditation thing sounds a lot like basically cognitive behavioral therapy, which is experiencing a thought, recognizing that you're having it and actively working to change that thought and that behavior. Um, and over time, you know, practice makes perfect, all that stuff. Um, but it's interesting to hear that concept applied to something like OCD, which, you know, it's not just an insecurity, like, oh, I'm going to stop telling myself that I look bad or whatever. It's This is a deeply ingrained uh, disorder that people suffer from. And so it, it is interesting and it is controversial. But again, if it works for people, if it helps people, why not? Well, and considering, too, how debilitating it is for the people who experience it, and the prevalence rate, like we mentioned, it is more common than schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Yet, Dr. Pittenger at Yale notes how OCD, quote, receives far less attention from the major funders of research like the National Institutes of Health and the pharmaceutical industry than other conditions of comparable severity. So, for instance, a, a pharmaceutical company, Roe, has been conducting trials on an OCD-targeted drug, as opposed to a drug that might, as an additional side effect, effectively treat OCD. This specific drug is the first of its kind to be even tested, have any direct funding to it from the pharmaceutical industry since 1987. So, I mean, considering the, the, the commonality of it, it is sort of surprising that Big Pharma hasn't leapt on it, yeah. because it could be... A decent moneymaker? Well, I mean, you know, do do you have people or have you historically had people um, sort of advocating for OCD patients and sufferers the way that you have people, you know, rightfully so in Alzheimer's, breast cancer? I mean, those people are very vocal as well. They should be. But does OCD have champions that are that vocal and and that hasn't historically been the case until sort of recently we've we've seen sort of an upsurge in attention paid to actual clinical life altering OCD versus just the adorable like monk character on TV or Jack Nicholson's character in as good as it gets i think people with actual OCD are starting to get more attention yeah you have to wonder how much our pop cultural depictions of OCD is just kind of this this little character quirk that mm-hmm. some people have it makes men want to clean how funny is that and also just our casual use of it how that might in a very real real way negatively impact research funding for it. Because if we look at OCD in pop culture, we have movies like The Odd Couple, where Jack Lemmon's character plays this guy who cooks and he cleans and they can't have poker night at Walter Matthau's apartment because he's constantly wanting to clean up and like put coasters down so that they don't get, you know, stains on the table from their whiskey tumblers. <laughs> um And then you have shows like Monk that use OCD as a comedic device. And, of Mm -hmm. course, there's that gendered angle to it because it's funnier for a guy to have all these tics as opposed to a woman, it seems like. But one show that got a lot of praise for not using OCD as a comedic device at all was Girls, actually. Lena Dunham, who in real life has dealt with OCD since childhood, uh, had her character Hannah 
undergo a really traumatic OCD experience, basically, in the wake of, you know, a relationship trauma. She sort of reverts back to this OCD behavior of counting. Um, and she writes about her real life experience in her book, Not That Kind of Girl. Yeah. And this is just an excerpt of it. Be- and keep in mind, too, how this relates to the early onset of symptoms in childhood and adolescence. She writes, I'm eight and I'm afraid of everything. The list of things that keep me up at night includes, but is not limited to, appendicitis, typhoid, leprosy, unclean meat, foods I haven't seen emerge from their packaging, foods my mother hasn't tasted first so that if we die, we die together, homeless people, headaches, rape, kidnapping, milk, the subway, sleep. And she goes on to talk about the process of being in therapy as a child for OCD and growing up with it. And it's something that she still deals with. And she's talked publicly about how much it grates on her nerves to hear people casually say, oh, my God, I'm so OCD about X, Y, Z. And she says, no, you're not. Yeah. And you don't want to be because it's kind of awful. Yeah. Yeah. I this is definitely I feel like you and I do a lot of episodes, Kristen, where we we learn about something, we explore a topic. And at the end, we say, Maybe we should just cut that out, or, you know, cankles. We're not going to say cankles anymore. They're just ankles, people. And it's the same with OCD. I mean, this is an excellent listening to this episode, my friends, is a great opportunity to finally say, OK, we're going to stop being offensive. We're going to stop using OCD as an adjective because not only is it a really horrible condition to have to live with and deal with, but it has very real life awful consequences. There is a strong relationship between OCD and suicidal ideations and attempts. Um, the name John Cleaver Kelly might sound familiar to some people. He, in 2011, committed suicide. Um, it was his third suicide attempt. Um, he had been dealing with OCD his whole life and had been in institutions and been to therapists and psychiatrists trying to overcome it. And um, it led to tragic consequences. Yeah. And that, unfortunately, attracted national media attention to the life threatening potential of OCD. And that's, you know, a big reason why it isn't it isn't such a funny joke anymore. It isn't Mm -hmm. it isn't cute to just play off your um, propensity for organization or your enjoyment of like <laughs> of nice color schemes or whatever it might be as just this this cute little pet thing that you have because it is it's debilitating to the point of being lethal. Yeah. And that was one reason, too, why. And I don't have his name in front of me. There was a blogger over at Psychology Today who hates the depiction of Monk. And that yeah. entire TV show, because for the same reason, he was just saying, no, this is not like making it a, a comedic device isn't helping anybody. Right. And there was one particular episode where Monk gets on some kind of trial medication for OCD and it magically cures all of his symptoms. But with that, too, it takes away his ability to solve crimes as well as he does. So it turns OCD into the superpower of sorts and also made the, the blogger mad saying, no, there is no cure. And and don't make this into something good. It just it yeah. twists it and twists it and twists it. Yeah. He also wrote about his closet. He's like, yes, I do enjoy a neat closet where all of my things are color coordinated and whatever. But 
Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a symptom of my OCD. I just happen to like things neat. I don't feel like I can't leave the house if my hangers aren't hung just so. I have other symptoms of OCD that I've had to work hard to overcome. Yeah, and you, for instance, carrying out the same morning routine in college is not a sign probably of your obsessive compulsions, but rather just a healthy lifestyle, (laughs) you know, just keeping it together. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Just making sure I eat breakfast and brush my teeth. So people have suggested that instead of using the offhand, oh, oh my God, I'm so OCD, say something like, oh, you're really hyper-focused. You're diligent. You're detail-oriented. Or just say, yeah, I'm really into cleaning. I I enjoy cleanliness. (laughs) Yeah, done. I yeah. like I like having my I you can't even say I like having my CDs organized in alphabetical <laughs> order anymore because that doesn't exist. And now iTunes doesn't vinyls, for us. Vinyls back. So Vinyl. Okay. I like having my records alphabetically well, organized. We could probably say just to keep this even more current for the future. I like having my my cassettes <laughs> alphabetized because, you know, that's coming back. I can't roll my eyes any harder. <laughs> <laughs> so we're curious to know If this rings a bell with anybody, does anyone listening have obsessive compulsive disorder or have someone in your life who deals with this and perhaps has gone through treatment for it? What has been your experience and what do you think about eliminating this casual jokey use of OCD? Because some people get bristly when they hear things like, let's not use phrases like that because they think, oh, well, it's not doing any harm. Do you think that maybe it's fine? To use OCD in a casual, joking way, or yeah, maybe let's watch our language, be a little more diligent about that. Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook as well. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you about another acronym we've talked about on the podcast right now. Well, I have a letter here from Taylor that actually touches on two different sminty topics. She writes, I'm a female architect who was directed to your podcast by a coworker yesterday, and I have to tell you just how much I think that your stories and research and PSAs are so well-informed and interestingly presented. I've just begun to uncover the archive of your podcast and was struck by the timeliness of your Fibroids 101 podcast because it came out in December of last year, which was near the time that I was dealing with learning I had a uterine fibroid, but likely more than one. All of the areas you covered from race to treatment to taking time off from work were all issues I encountered in the fall of 2014. I wanted to just share an abbreviated version of my story because if I'd heard this podcast in December, I would have felt so much more prepared for what I was undertaking. From my own research, I already knew that African-American women like myself were much more likely to get fibroids. From my doctors, I knew that they weren't cancerous. And from three different ultrasounds, I knew my fibroid was larger than my uterus in diameter and on the exterior wall of my uterus. I wanted to say thank you for researching this topic because uterine fibroids are indeed a topic that not a lot of women know exists or know could be the cause of symptoms affecting them. And B, the options for treating them are pretty slim for premenopausal women who have yet to have children like myself. In fact, other than the removal of my IUD because of the size and location of my fibroid, I didn't receive any treatment except for the recommendation to take a series of non-prescription supplements to regulate hormones. I also think that the relationship between African-American women 
and uterine, uterine fibroids is very interesting because of factors that range from genetics to socioeconomic status. I'm actually half black, my mother being Caucasian, and I've never used hair relaxers. I consider myself a member of the educated middle class, and I also lead and was raised with a healthy, healthy lifestyle that does not include eating red meat and an avoidance of inorganically grown food or gluten. So despite doing what seems to have been healthy for the avoidance of fibroids, I still am in that percentage of 25 to 70 percent of childbearing aged women that have fibroids in the U.S. You both are doing an amazing job with this podcast, and I was so touched by the truth that you relayed in this particular episode that I was compelled to tell you, you really covered this one. So thank you, Taylor. So I have a letter here from Laura about our Queen's Week, and she writes, Love the podcast. I eagerly listen to every episode and have even gotten my fiancé addicted. Thank you, Laura. As a huge history nerd, I had to drop a line about your Queen's Week. First of all, woo, loved having a podcast look at queens from a more feminist perspective. So many look at women rulers as stereotypes, so it was good to hear them explored as real people. I wish you could have turned Queen's Week into Queen's Month. I was a big fan of the Hatship Set episode, but I was a little disappointed in your second choice, Victoria. With a long list of kick-ass female rulers, Victoria was a bit of a downer. She was strongly against women's suffrage and very outspoken about women's place in the world, which was not exactly a feminist stance. I would have loved to have heard an episode on Isabella, who encouraged study and ruled in her own right, or Jinga of Angola, who fought European invasion, or my favorite, Elizabeth, who basically won at ruling during the late Middle Ages. I'd love to hear an episode on women and families in indigenous cultures around the world as well. I know in Australia, the Aboriginal culture's relationship with women is really complex, as is the Maori women's place in the family. Would love to hear something on cultures around the world. Thanks for the awesome podcast, and keep up the good work. And thanks for your suggestions, Laura. I think that Victoria was nonetheless a compelling person to talk about, because the thing is, when it comes to women, they are not always everything we hope that they will be. So her complexity is kind of fascinating to me in that regard. But now, thanks to you, we have some more incredible ladies to spotlight. And be sure, too, to check over at Stuff You Missed in History Class, because they have done a number of podcasts on fantastic lady rulers over the ages as well. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. To find links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with this one, so you can read along and learn about your possible OCD tendencies, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 